Hello, hello, and welcome to Built on Hope, a podcast dedicated to competitive imperial assault. I'm your host, Isaac, and today we have yet another knowledge and defense segment led by the wonderful, wonderful David, who is with me today. Good morning. So I guess we can apologize in advance if there's any weirdness in the recording. It is 6 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. And let's also keep in mind, we're also now recording from the Gao's residence, which means, I mean, the, hopefully the quality should be a little bit better now that we're all in one room together. The problem is I had to get up at four this morning to get over here. And the reason for that is that we have no stranger to this community, nor to podcasting. We have the illustrious Kenny Brown, who will be joining us in a little bit. He's going to be here this episode to help us talk about a very, very interesting knowledge and defense segment, which David will introduce later. I think you guys are going to have a blast. But first up, here we have Jess with the news. Hi, everyone. This is Jessica with your news roundup. First off, congratulations to Morfio, the new Spanish Nationals champ. Also, congratulations to Arvidas, the new Polish Nationals champ, uh, both of them winning with a scum hunters list, which seems to be dominating the meta currently. From FFG, the new raid mode on the app, the Grey Cap Cantina, is now out, so we'll be looking forward to trying that out. Update from Adepticon about Worlds 2020. So Adepticon has confirmed that Imperial Assault will be holding an 80-player last chance qualifier that will be held on Thursday, which is March 26th. Then the next day will be the Imperial Assault World Championship, again, 80 players, which will be starting on Friday with the top cut and finals being held on Saturday. So it seems like there will be enough space for anybody that wants to go. 80 players is pretty big. So if you are interested in coming to Worlds, uh, David and I and Isaac will also be there. I will be in the last chance qualifier myself. The other two of them already have their seat, but hope to see you there. Now, in IACP news, uh, so unfortunately for IACP, there is only space at Adepticon to run an event on Sunday from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., which isn't quite enough time for a world championship, but Isaac is still going to be running an IACP tournament of some kind. Uh, stay tuned for that. If you want any more information or updates, Feel free to message us on the Zion's Finest Slack or at builtonhopeia at gmail.com because if you um, let us know that you're interested, we'll have a better idea of numbers so that we can better plan for that. Also in ISP news, the trophies are done and being shipped out for regionals. So if you still need to coordinate shipping, contact Isaac for that. We ran our own IACP regional in Milton Keynes, and it was a great success. We had 16 participants, big spread of lists, and we had a lot of fun. And congratulations to Sam Whitaker, who took home the trophy. Uh, we are going to have a recap episode of that event coming up soon with Sam as our guest, and we will also be releasing videos from the event, including our Battle Royale Hunger Games side event, which was quite a lot of fun. And that's it for the news. Over to you, David. All right. Welcome to another Knowledge and Defense segment. And we are super excited to have Kenny Brown, the infamous uh, host of Zion's Finest, here with us this week as a guest star. Hello, guys. Today, we'll be talking about um, a concept written originally for collectible card games called Who's the Beatdown? And this was designed kind of in the context of old, old, old Magic the Gathering days uh, and applied to a number of other games at this point so far. I think it's super useful and I think it'll be great. Yeah. So as a quick definition, I think who's the beatdown refers to which of the two players in a game needs to be aggressive and make plays. So this is a bit simplified from the original definition, but I think is the best one that applies to Imperial Assaults. I think in our in our game, we have this tendency to really favor sitting back and making very careful plays, but sometimes it's really useful to figure out when you have to be the player 
to make something happen in order to win. And if you're unable to do that, uh, you probably won't win your game. So in order to discuss that properly, there's another another concept we need to define very initially, um, and it's something called inevitability. So inevitability refers to which player has the advantage in a long game. So if the game goes to time or the game goes to the end, which of the two players will actually win? And this ends up being very complicated in Imperial Assault because we have things like tournament time limits and we also have things like alternate win conditions. So we can say that a player has inevitability in a matchup only if they have the advantage at the start of the game. So from turn one, if the game just sits there and nothing happens, they will eventually probably win. All right, so thanks for the overview of the definitions for beatdown and inevitability. Now, for me personally, I definitely find myself more in the beatdown category. Just because of the way that I play and the way that I design my lists, I am not a conservative player. How do you identify when you're the beatdown and how would you approach the rest of your game? Okay, so identifying when you're the beatdown is related to which player has inevitability. If you're at a disadvantage in the long game, then you are kind of forced to take on the beatdown role, whether or not your list is built for it. So a, a good example maybe is if you have two spy lists and one list has a little bit more spy than the other, the one that has less control elements has to then become the aggressor. They they don't have a choice, even if they would rather play the control role. Okay, interesting. So sometimes you might build a list to play conservatively, but on the day you realize that in your particular matchup, that strategy, they do better. And so then you have to kind of uh, recalibrate and play differently. How would you, as a player deal with that coming up in a matchup? The first thing you have to do, obviously, is to tell which of the two roles you have in the game in that specific match, rather than the, the one that you built your list for, right? And then if you find that you are the beatdown role, then you really need to be aware. You need to know what things I need to kill, what objectives do I need to take to get the 40 points and win the game. Because you have to be the one kind of driving the pace of the game and trying to end it. So this this can be done, uh, for example, if you're playing an Imperial beefy list with two elite riots, two jet troopers, reinforcements. You almost have to just throw everything straight at them and kill and die as quickly as possible and hope that you wipe out their combat units before you, your opponent can kind of get their control element going and beat you on points. Now, a question is, are you trying to get to 40 points? Like, would you want to be playing faster, like making your decisions more quickly? You wouldn't though, right? Because if somebody else has inevitability, they want to push it to further rounds. So you would want to maybe be more careful in your planning but make plays that are aggressive, right? You don't want the game to be going out to longer rounds. You you don't want the game to be going out to longer rounds, but that often means you have to be hyper-aggressive. Mm -hmm. Because if you kind of sit back for a round and draw cards or focus up, that has extended the rounds by one already. Right. You have to be really aware if you take a round to get ready and play carefully that that's useful. So... An, Another really strong version of beatdown in Imperial Assault, I would say, has nothing to do with fighting, um, despite the name beatdown. I actually think the Jawa Swarm is a beatdown list, mm -hmm. because if, if you draw the analogy to another game where you win by depleting your opponent's life points or something, all their cards basically hit that victory condition for three continuously. So things like celebration or rebel graffiti or a price on their heads these are almost like the the fireball or kind of whatever mm -hmm. direct damage spells in the other game and they're just directly attacking that victory condition rather than trying to take things off the board 
Got it. And so what I was also considering is that actions are a very valuable resource. So if you're the beatdown, your actions, I feel like, are the more valuable resource. You can't use your actions to then draw other types of re- uh, resources like cards. Yeah, you, you've really kind of got to capitalize on the type of resource that you have more of than your opponent. So they, there is a lot of talk about how you define beatdown, and one of them is just you, you do more damage, you've got more health, so you're better at straight-up fighting. So then you just want to trade figures with them as quickly as possible until they just have support figures left, and you've got stuff that can actually still win the game. Okay, so if you find yourself in the beatdown role, Dave can give us a quick summary. What is your top tips for what to do? Well, if you're if you're playing a, a Java Swarm, I think it's business as usual because it's it's built to just generate those victory points. But if you're if you're a combat list like uh, Vader Vader jets, maybe with even more more beefy Empire units, riots or something, you really need to start the fight as soon as possible rather than waiting for position, letting your opponent draw cards. Yeah, for me, it's the opening the doors. I find I really have a hard decision about opening the doors. And so if you were in the beatdown position, you want to try to push that fight if you are in a combat-heavy list rather than hanging back and trying to get the right positioning. You want to force the fight. Yeah, that's right. And I think Imperial Assault is complex enough that the sort of type matchup isn't as as absolutely brutal in terms of determining whether you win or lose in the right. end as in some other games right so you you can overcome quite a lot if you play well and if you manage to get your opponent out or they make a mistake great now another question i wanted to ask is do the roles flip flop in the game like is there going to be at some point where you're the beatdown but when you've tipped it you become the one with inevitability. So yes, I think that happens, but I wouldn't even say that the roles flip because you can actually have both roles. You you can start out as the beatdown and you can, you know, be forced to make plays and try to whittle down their list as quickly as possible. And once you've done enough of that, you might take over this control role. You might have inevitability because you're going to win unless they can pull something off. But that doesn't mean you're no longer the beatdown role. If you're, you know, if you have four jet troopers left and they have a Jawa, Gideon, and three PO, because you, you have to keep being aggressive. Yeah. So in in that sense, you're you're still the beatdown. But when one player manages to kind of take on both roles, the game's almost certainly over because uh, they've got the yeah, advantage. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks for that discussion about the beatdown. So then um, stay tuned for um, Isaac and Kenny discussing in more detail inevitability. Right, and I will see you later. So Kenny, you've you've taken some time and read, read through the articles that I'm talking about. Do you agree with these definitions that I've, I've given so far? Yeah, it, it sounds good. Do you want to talk about determining who who is the beatdown, or do you? Um, I, I I concur wholeheartedly with your definition. Okay, yeah, definitely. So yeah, let's let's start by maybe giving an example and some ideas on how to tell who the beatdown player is. So first of all, finding out who the beatdown player is depends a lot on what the win condition of the match is. And in Imperial Assault, we, we win by points and not always kills, right? And this is, this is I think, partly why uh, VP lists suddenly have gotten so powerful. So I think when, when we tend to build a list, uh, we always say that you should have some idea of how you're going to win, right? And the, the standard list wins by murdering all of the opponent's figures. And if you're playing victory points, you kind of change that victory condition and you end up winning by gaining a lot of VP. So a good good example to think of, perhaps, is if you're playing a Vader list versus a Scum VP list. So who has inevitability in this case? Well, I mean, it is certainly an interesting debacle. 
on one hand, you do obviously have the fact that ScumVP is going to get, that list is going to get so many extra points so quickly that you would definitely say that they would have inevitability and that the Vader list would really need to make a big play if they were to catch up and do something, considering the fact that Vader will usually be more of a kill unit than an objective unit. However, that does differ, of course, a little bit depending on the map, because if it's a heavy control map, such as on Blitz, or especially on some of the previous maps, such as um, the control mission on Java's Palace, where you can get four points for every stash, that certainly gives the Empire quite an advantage, considering the fact that they're units are close range and they're tanky so they can just sit on those injectors and keep on getting them where scum vp they do need to get their kills and let's remember that the, that scum vp usually relies on their hunter cards to get the kills there are only so many hunter cards in the deck which obviously thrawn can get rid of vader can strain away etc etc so what do you think kenny so for inevitability i think it kind of depends on what the imperials are bringing to the table with Thrawn, though, I would actually say that the inevitability calculus kind of favors Vader because he can just sit back with Thrawn and pull his opponent's strong cards. And if they've got like some spy tech in there, like a cross-trained Death Trooper, they can just pick apart their opponent's hand until the time comes when they're ready to swing. They've got negation in hand, initiative is coming their way, and Vader can bomb in. And I, and so that w- I, I would say that... That's kind of the scary thing I think about playing versus Vader Thrawn is that there's just this ticking time bomb of him picking apart your cards while he's waiting to to pull off the final combo. But obviously that can also work the other way if it's just Vader and the Jets versus um, like a scum a scum victory point list. I mean, if a list has Sabine, I think that it is really tough to argue that that list doesn't just have the inevitability calculus in its favor just because they got over graffiti, lots of ways to pull points off the board. But with just these like typical scum lists, I wouldn't actually say they have a ton of inevitability um, because it depends on if they're able to pull off their combo before their opponent is able to stop them, right? Like the list I took to Worlds was very straightforward. It was just scum hunters. I didn't, all I was looking to do was take advantage of that start of round, end of round swing or the strength in numbers play or something like that. But it was never, I, I, I would never have said that. I felt like there was a sense of inevitability for, for my win. Yeah, I think I think that's that's accurate. And I think that reflects on what you guys have more experience in as well. Because you you tend to evaluate the lists based on what you enjoy playing a lot more. And and you're trying to create situations in which you have inevitability. So I think that that was probably a really tricky example because on on paper the inevitability analysis changes so wildly with uh, Vader versus Scum VP, not just on the maps, but also if you consider time. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I would say Vader is almost always going to be stronger if you play until everyone is dead mm-hmm. because your your depth of roster is huge, right? It's, it's almost like... Um, so I know I know we we kind of hate Spectre Cell in many ways, but <laughs> in in some ways, I actually really like it as an example because it's such an extreme list. It's really easy to illustrate concepts with it. It's a great point. So Spectre Cell, yeah, Spectre Cell has has inevitability. I would say in most fighting matches because you just simply can't kill all of Spectre Cell. Their depth of roster is so huge. Eventually, you know, Chopper and Sabine will still murder Vader. Yep. But the game that we play ends after 65 minutes. And that that changes things quite a lot, right? Um, And I think the other thing to point out maybe is that inevitability does change during the game. So, you know, if you get your Mega Hunter combo and you take out Vader suddenly the the game kind of favors you right when it ends you're going to have a huge amount of points and you're likely to win so now it's up to the other player to really change the board state and and come back okay um so i think that that's an interesting example and we we might talk about kind of the uh pieces that you can put into a list to increase uh, the inevitability that you have so that when you're trying to design a new list, you keep in mind, you know, which matchups you need to be aggressive in 
and which matchups you need to be a bit more of that control or defensive position. So we can start by maybe talking about maybe that Kenny's got a lot of experience in is the box. Absolutely. Um, would you like me to talk about this in terms of beatdown or in terms of inevitability? Um, Both, I guess. Okay. So with the box, so as I was reading these articles that David sent me, it actually has really helped focus my mind in terms of thinking about the major archetypes that we're going to be tackling in this season of regionals. And so the, I, without ever really putting hard theory on it, like these Magic the Gathering guys did, I always thought like the purpose of the box was to weather the storm of my opponent, punish mistakes, and just attri- like out attrition them, right? Like force them to mm-hmm. attack Han, force them to attack Dracotta, and wear down, force my opponent to spend resources so that eventually I was just able to um, like them not being able to overcome what I was able to do, I was then just able to fulfill my winning condition, which is, okay, you spent Assassinate to kill Dracotta, but I had Miracle Worker, and then I pulled Dracotta away, was able to heal her. And now, you know, I've got a Dracotta who only has four damage on her, and you've spent your best card. So in terms of thinking about that with these beat down, this beat down and, and inevitability rubric, the thing about this beat down, what, what they say is, in terms of examining whether or not your deck is the beatdown, they say to think about things like who has more damage. If your list has more damage, so thinking easily in terms of um, scum hunters, like just a simple scum hunter archetype, usually has the most damage. So that's usually the beatdown deck. And then the, another thing they say is who has more removal. And so I think about so removal is in magic. I don't actually know exactly what it is in Magic, but like in Destiny, removal is about mitigating your opponent's, um, what your opponent is able to do. And there is a lot of that in Imperial Assault. Spy cards, MHD, um, those are really big in terms of removal. It takes what your opponent is trying to do and doesn't try and do something else better, but just stops what your opponent is trying to do. And then um, the the other thing they say, and this is, I thought, really interesting. They say, who has more permission in card drawing? I have no idea what permission means in Magic the Gathering, but in terms of card drawing, that's what, what the box was all about, is gaining card advantage through slow, conservative play, also using spies to play Strategic Shift and Intelligence League, so that when I needed to be able to make my move, I could control what my opponent was able to do. So my opponent has eight cards in hand. They're looking to set up their own kind of combo, trying to break the box. And I say, nope, Max going to Strat Shift you, and or I'm going to Intelligence League and get rid of your On the Lamb or something, or Assassinate, and then I mean, she's just going to heal him. And now I'm going to be able to do my own thing. So in my... so. Without thinking about Spectre Cell, which is just its own thing, the box always struck me as the most inevitable of lists. I'm playing all these spy cards. I have got Miracle Worker. I've got On the Lamb. It's a hyper-defensive kit. And ultimately, if they're not able to pull off Han and Dracotta off the board, they just cannot. They can't do anything because I'm going to have all these cards in play, be able to control their cards, and just eventually be able to win off sneak sneak plays like arcing shot things that your opponent isn't really able to expect so i've always thought of the box as kind of the penultimate inevitability and the whole point of it is in terms of what i built it to do was stay alive long enough so that i could satisfy that inevitable condition mhd doesn't go down until he's played miracle worker i force my opponents to play lots of powerful command cards wasting their resources um, like that was the whole idea of the box is live long enough so that I that inevitability kind of pulls through for me. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, you mentioned um, that the article talked about card draw. And for for those that don't play CCGs and magic in particular, I think they, they use that language because the only resources you really have are your cards and your amount of life remaining. But in Imperial Assault, I think we can widen it a bit because we have a lot of additional resources. So what I'm talking about is you can draw command cards in in Kenny's uh, box lists. Of course, you can put them back in the deck, which generates additional resources. But also you have things like the Rebel Care Package, where Gideon and 3PO generate focus tokens or additional dice that you shoot, which is additional resources for you to use. You also have things like power tokens. You can have, you can generate little droids with Ugnots, 
<laughs> whether or not you want to do that. Yeah. So if you if you generate a, a droid and then they spend an action or something to shoot at it, then you've kind of used up some of their resources as well, right? I, I think in our game we we kind of know that it'll go to about four rounds usually. So you can almost count up all the actions one side is going to have. And that's just all of the resources they have to try to get objectives, to try to control the board, and to try to kill things. Exactly. And that's kind of what, um, speaking of another um, list with inevitability, just as uh, Kenny considers the box to be an, an epiphany of a list with inevitability, I definitely consider my Han Rangers variant to have a definition of of inevitability between the spy cards and the nine activations there's so much i'm able to do and stop my opponent to do and when i you know when i replace my negation with my comms disruption and i just wait for that start around end of round swing with my rangers it's it's got a bit of an ig ig feel to it in that there's very little you can do to stop it unless you have specifically planned to stop it you can't stop blaze unless you've built your list to combat blaze Blaze of Glory, obviously. Blaze is a whole different problem. Oh, yeah. So I, I think that's actually quite quite interesting. And we'll come back to this. Do you want to talk about your list and inevitability? The things you've put in? Yeah, sure. So in Heart Rangers, so I've spoken about this list quite a lot. But my most recent variant is a nine activation, as in three smugglers, while still having Spy. So I don't have Hera. I've got Mac instead, etc. And essentially, the point of the list is for me to stay back my smugglers try and do some objectives, but they never take objectives if it just means they're going to move out, get me two points, and then they die. That is not worth it. They move out if it's, if, if I can get a safe uh, or a relatively safe couple of points. They're also my body blockers. I keep my rangers and Han alive at all costs until I'm ready to strike. Yeah, some examples of, of how this would be done is first of the nine activations. Few lists will be able to get to nine activations to be able to stop me having last activation, which means Han every single round has inevitability against most lists. Obviously, there are some exceptions, such as against IG, you can never have complete inevitability because they could have Blaze of Glory, etc. Additionally, my Han Rangers list also has a bunch of VP shenanigans as well. So there's Celebration and Price on the Heads. So I remember at Worlds this year, there was one end-round, start-around swing where I think I got probably 24 points of killing two Spectre figures. And once you've done that, essentially how my list operates on inevitability is stay back, load up, charge up, run out when there is no possible chance of it going sour. As in, unless they have two spies on the board, there is nothing that can get rid of my comms disruption. So I know I will be able to take initiative. I know I will be able to stop negation and stuff like that. And so in, in your list, you're using the focus generation. Correct. You're using R2 for card draw. You're using spy as the element of control. You're using a lot of activations to give yourself more actions than the other player during the game. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Precisely. And then also Han, who has an incredible sense of inevitability, because eventually he's going to join to Lam, and then he just becomes a whole other problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, I can briefly talk about my, my list from last year as well, which is changing a lot these days because it was originally built to combat Spectre Cell and to really gain inv- inevitability on, on Spectre Cell in almost every way. I was focusing a lot on victory points. I was focusing a lot on being able to draw cards. And I was also focusing a lot on gaining victory points without having to put myself out there so that whole you need to kill one or two spectre cell characters beat them on points and then end the game strategy and things like rebel graffiti the hunter set of cards you know card draw from java black market black market prices and Lothcats just being able to trade for that one unique character so I can play all the victory points cards was was the plan. So I think what's what's really interesting though is that almost everybody thinks that they've got really good inevitability, which inevitably means that <laughs> only one of us really does <laughs> if we were to play against each other. So there there is this sense of uh an arms race, right? So the the person who actually 
has more more control elements and will actually win in the long game in this situation would have an advantage assuming we all played like we had it so i think an interesting discussion maybe would, would be kenny and, and and isaac if you guys were to play those lists against each other <laughs> do, is it possible for you guys to agree on one of you having inevitability or not oh my goodness <laughs> So Isaac, so is this the list where you do you not have Hera? Correct. So what's interesting about this is that um, Han Rangers, and especially like a nine act list, is a list that the box like I'm not thrilled to go against that for all the reasons that Isaac has said because the box that I took to Worlds two years ago and the box I won the regional with in January was a not, it was also a nine act list, but I think that so when I when I tackle a list like Han Rangers with nine acts or IG right. Because they're they're both doing a similar thing in terms of looking for this crazy end of round tempo swing, end of round mm-hmm. start of round tempo swing. What I'm always thinking is, do I have a way to kind of brush them off the plate so that I can secure my inevitability condition, right? Because otherwise, they're going to be able to do their thing. So that's why we have spy cards, right? And then that's also why we have cards like Arcing Shot, things like that. Like Arcing Shot is my kill a Alliance Ranger card. Right. Like I'm 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 looking to pick off a ranger that they that my opponent wasn't expecting or that I wasn't expecting me to be able to do or kill a pirate when my opponent doesn't have land, things like that. And if you're able if I'm able to do that, then I feel really good. Right. Because I have blunted my opponent's ability to do his tempo swing. Whereas on the other hand, if, you know, they have got like their suite and they've got initiative coming to them and they've got negation, then Isaac can swing his rangers around with his last act and you know, pick off Dracotta or something like that before I'm able to really respond. So I think that when you're talking about these lists that are built to be very defensive, aiming for kind of either these swings or this focus on controlling your opponent, the question of inevitability is <laughs> more a question of, well, if you're both thinking you're inevitable, who's actually going to be inevitable in terms of like pulling off something first, right? So if I'm able to arcing shot and kill a focused Alliance Ranger, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to win the game. If he, if Isaac has negation and is able to swing around and pick off Dracotta before I'm able to do anything and I don't have Miracle Worker, he's probably going to win that game. So I think it, it's more of when you're thinking about these lists that are built to do that, it's going to be a ca- the case of who who gets what they have in ter- or who gets what they need. And that's why that card draw obviously is so important in terms of helping to secure that advantage. Yeah, I guess it, it almost comes down to statistically which one of you is more likely to get what you need yeah. uh, at an earlier point in the game, right? Yeah, so I do definitely have an interesting, uh, an interesting take on that. Whilst I do completely agree with Kenny's assessment, there, are, there is one, one theory, which maybe will turn into an episode at some point, but a theory about luck, essentially what is luck. The theory is luck doesn't exist. And before you turn off the podcast, let me explain. So luck has four aspects. So first off, there's preparation. How prepared are you to deal with your luck? Secondly is mindset. How are you envisioning this situation going for you if you get or don't get the luck? Third is opportunity, which is what most people would just refer to as the luck. I get the card I need, you position in a way which isn't optimal, etc. And then the fourth is execution. How do you execute that play? And what I find really interesting about this matchup is that, yes, you're completely right, much of it is going to come down to who gets what they need first. But in a good game between two good players, you are always going to play as if you think your opponent is going to do that thing next. I am always going to stay two away from every corner so that I can never get arcing shot. And Kenny is probably going to body block with his smugglers and 3PO from as many corners as he can, so that if I get my start round end round swing, I would need to chew through a bunch of white die figures to get to his big guys. And that's just what I find really, really interesting about this matchup, because inevitability I find to be a really, really interesting concept. But the inevitability of a list, for me, is inferior to the inevitability of a player. Because a good player will play around a list which has incredible inevitability, because usually there is a way to position around it, play around it, etc. So would you agree with that, Kenny? Or? I would. I mean, I think that when we're, when I'm, I'm talking about like, well, whoever is going to draw into their free thing first is going to have a strong advantage. Like that is not something that just happens out of the blue, right? Like no, yeah. we're, we're positioning ourselves in terms of being able to capitalize on the advantage when we get it. 
that's also why we build our list the way we do in terms of having R2 and our, all this card, like every single card draw in the game is because we're aiming to, we, we want to both have the possibility of our win condition and the capacity to be able to take advantage of the win condition. So, and obviously that is, there is a ton of like tactics in terms of pulling it off, right? Like in terms of blocking and like all the things that you're talking about, but those are things that are, that are happening and then being responded to in the game. And what you're trying to do with your list is say, okay, I, what I want my list to be able to do is that when presented with the opportunity, I have the capacity to do the thing I need to do in order to win the game. Right. And maybe that's something that will happen at several stages. Right. Or, and you're obviously your opponent's going to try and stop you from doing that. But you've, you've got to be able to envision that so that you're not missing opportunities. Right. Or you feel like you played a really good game, but turns out you're probably too passive or something like that or the opposite. So, yeah. I, so I, I sort of agree with what's been said and maybe philosophically disagree a little bit. <laughs> I think this is mainly. <laughs> So I think what Isaac has said is actually a symptom of just how good of a competitive game Imperial Assault is rather than something related to the inevitability concept. Mm. And it's that there is such a high skill ceiling that you can overcome slight disadvantages pretty easily if you've just practiced, if you're experienced, you know what to do, if you're just better at the game. And this isn't true in a lot of other games that I will not mention now. <laughs> but yeah, so th there are a lot of games where, you know, you, you get your board state and you look at it and you can just be like, okay, yeah, I have a 40% chance of winning now, right? Which is so different from what we are talking about when you try to play at, say, Imperial Assault Worlds. You will always, you know, try to make a comeback somehow your opponent has a really high chance of making mistakes, even if they are three-time world champion or something like that. Yeah. Because it's very difficult to play a perfect game of Imperial Assault. Absolutely. And I will make clear that the theory isn't an end-all be-all. It's just something, it's just a concept I found really, really interesting because especially considering the fact that a lot of the people I know, usually the people who complain about their luck are the ones who keep on getting the bad luck. And the people who are impartial to good luck or bad luck usually keep on getting good luck and that's why i've always had the yeah had the idea that luck is mostly in your mind and usually the result of what you would call luck usually you could blame it on one of your own actions if kenny is able to you know get docking shot off i could blame it on him drawing the card before i was ready or i could blame it on myself because i put the range in that spot when i really didn't need to and just those small things like that which i think and just like david said imperial assault is such it is such an amazing game, and there are few games in the world which are so intricate, so well-designed, and so skill-based, essentially, that, yeah, exactly, I definitely was more considering that theory in regards to Imperial Assault, other unnamed games. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, won't have that. Um, I think every, every time I, I look at myself playing on a recording or something i just end up screaming oh why are you doing that that's a terrible move yeah. even if it was just you know a day ago and i i feel like i should have not changed my mindset so quickly <laughs> uh, i was gonna say the the other thing is like when we talk about luck like there you know isaac might say there's no such thing as luck but there is such a thing as probability right Correct. and and so there are times where things just do not um do not turn out as they probably should have right or could have or would have or you know should we'll just say should have and i i have found that early on when i started playing imperial assault when things did not turn out as they should have was when I would say, okay, well, I've lost, right? Like, I cannot win at this point, right? And early on in my Imperial Assault days, like, my opponent would roll a dodge, or they'd roll two dodges in a row, right? And you're like, okay, well, I can't come back from that. But what you learn as you play more is both how to understand what your the true probabilities of, like, what you're actually looking at are in terms of, okay, well... I need to kill three. I need to kill three PO in order to do X. Okay, so what are the odds he's going to roll a dodge? What are the odds he's going to roll whatever into a dodge? And you start figuring out you, you you figure out the 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 texture of probability for all of these things. What does it take to one shot a jet? Can I do that? And by figuring out those probabilities, you're able to optimize your your decisions 
so that what is most probable, right? Like where you're saying, well, you're not just going to flip a coin. Like if you've got a 50-50 chance to do something you need to do and you're banking your whole game on that, it's like, okay, well, then it is simply a matter of luck, right? Um, But what you really should be aiming to do is to think about this in terms of, okay, what can I do so that it is more probable than not by at least, you know, some kind of outside the statistical error margin that I will, that I will succeed, right? So what does Han, what resources do I need to put into this Han shot to make sure I one shot that jet or things like that? And I, I, I have found that the more experience I get with Imperial Assault, the more I'm able to say like, okay, well, my opponent rolled a dodge. But that doesn't mean I'm out of the game, right? Like when you're, if you're hunters and your opponent holds a dodge, it really doesn't mean you're out of the game. Um, but, but like just thinking about things like that in terms of helping understand when your inevitability condition is actually not affected like you thought it was because the probabilities didn't quite shake your way. Yeah, exactly. And I completely agree with that. And I will make clear that with my theory on luck, essentially, I definitely do think luck exists. I don't consider it to be called luck. Obviously, with the four elements of luck, that opportunity element can be so drastic, like, you know, drawing, planning, assassinate and lamb in hand round one. That is a that is pretty good. Just raw opportunity. Yep. (laughs) Um, But essentially, what I mean is that the execution of the opportunity you are given in imperial assault i will make clear other games obviously less so unnamed game of course it, it won't be like that but but in imperial assault i mean i remember a game in one of my earliest days and i remember talking about this on your podcast kenny years ago that i once had a game where i lost two rangers round one to an ig blaze and at first you might think well that's absolutely disastrous how that's it. You're done, right? Like you can't come back from that. Yeah, exactly. IG's in your face. There's you only have one ranger. But then you think about exactly what he had to do to do that. For IG to be able to get that swing off, he played hunter cards. He played blaze and stuff like that. Whereas I, I now have called the vanguard, and I was able. To, I mean, the game was so long ago. I don't remember the fine details, but I do remember I was able to pull it out. And that's just the thing that he had a huge tempo swing and. That was definitely in part luck because he got the cards he needed and he capitalized on the luck in the way he felt was optimal. The result of that, however, was that I still won the game in the long run because he had used so many of his resources immediately and that left him vulnerable for the future. And there's another element that I find really, really interesting about this um, inevitability is that it all depends on how you use your inevitability. Because if you use all of your potential early, then unless you gave yourself such a drastic lead, and even if you did, to be honest, you could still leave yourself very vulnerable to the rest of the game if you sacrifice your entire plan or sacrifice all of your resources on one big swing. Even if it succeeds, you kill two rangers around one. Yeah, I think that's a that's actually a really good example of how resources in Imperial Assault is such a widely defined concept because you have your cards you have these tokens you generate but your figures and your remaining victory points before your opponent gets to 40 these are all resources so i I like i like to always say that if you're playing a game and you've got a lot of health left or you've got a lot of mana left or you've got a lot of cards or you've got a lot of figures you actually haven't used all of your resources (laughs) so everybody in your list who is still alive at the end of the game, who doesn't need to be alive, is extra resources that that you could have spent. That is such a great point. Yeah, so for example, if you if you lose a game, your opponent gets 40 points, but they haven't killed anything of yours, I say that is a sign that you were actually supposed to be the beatdown and you haven't spent your figures, which are your your offensive resources, in preventing them from getting their win condition. It's also, I, I want to make one point about this because this is something you learn playing games like Dota or League of Legends or like Overwatch or something where when you're not, like when you first start playing the game, you think like, well, I've got spells or I've got attacks and like this is this is what I've got, right? Like I've got mana, I've got my my spells and my attacks and that those are my resources. So, you know, committing your cooldowns is what you think is the big deal. But what you realize is that good players understand exactly what David said is that your health is a resource, right? So like a good support, part of what they're doing is using their HP in terms of trading damage with their, you know, the opposing figure in the lane or whoever they're dueling with. 
in order to give their core their core player space or like room to farm or things like that and that is just such an incredible insight in that you're only you're 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 just leaving this resource on the table like david said like any figure who is alive at the end of the game that doesn't need to be alive is an unspent resource right you were not as efficient as you could have been and man that is such an incredible thing to think about in terms of um trading plastic on the board yeah i think a, a really obvious example of this is that we all subconsciously already know is if you have a bunch of figures and they've dealt a couple of damage to every single one but not killed anything, you've probably won because you've used that health pool resource of all your figures without them being able to get any points from it or or removing your activations. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I see two of the absolute best examples to be Onar and a regular smuggler. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, the smugglers with that negative two accuracy standing next to 3PO behind Han is an absolute pain for, I mean, a lot of lists. Because, which is exactly why I put three in my list and on most maps, they will essentially just stand and body block. And um, because I remember speaking about this, how against IG on Uskru, for example, because IG on Uskru is such a ticking time bomb, the best thing you can do is to defend against that the best you can by having, by building a wall of smugglers. So that when IG bombs in, he has to shoot through a bunch of smugglers, which will give you chance to react to IG bombing in. And then Onar as well, because he is such an incredibly tanky figure, because that 15 health is just such a pain to get through, especially with get down, removing that those vital surges. But it's just that he's just such a figure with such a presence. You know that he does such ridiculous damage. He can do unblockable damage as well, which is insane, at range 8 around corners, which when you think about an unblockable 1 damage around corners end game is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. When a figure survives on one health, you just send Onar in after them, get those 10 to 12 to 13 points. Yep. Um, whereas you don't want to spend any resources getting Onar off the board because <laughs> there's IG hiding in the treehouse over there. And yeah, I, I just find both of those figures especially to really demonstrate that quite well. Cool. Yeah, so the last kind of big concept I wanted to touch upon was actually something Kenny said in in Slack which you know kicked off this train of thought in my mind and and made me really want to invite him to chat about it. He was talking about playing Destiny actually, not Imperial Assault. And he was talking about playing a mill deck where you kind of flip the table over and suddenly change the win condition for your opponent drastically. So you you suddenly Say, okay, you thought you were going to play a game where we were going to kill each other's characters or figures, but surprise, we're not playing that game. We're playing a game where I deck you out and I win. And the reason that's so strong is because you're playing against someone who has determined internally whether or not they have inevitability against you. And suddenly you say, no, actually you don't. I, I have huge amounts of inevitability in that I don't even care what you're doing this game. As long as my things work, then I will win. And the the prime example, I would say, in Imperial Assault recently was the the amazing Jawa Swarm yep. uh, that swept... Uh, was Nova? It wasn't Nova, it was Gen Con. Ah, yes, the, the Jawa Swarm that, that swept Gen Con. So the moment you change what it means to win the game it's very easy for people to misjudge whether or not they should be the aggressor. And that often can put you in a huge advantage. That is absolutely true. And I would say this, having played against the Java Swarm, we had a, a local player, Robert, who was playing the Java Swarm like a year ago or a year and a half ago. And it is disorienting to play it the first time. Because it you it is exactly what you think in terms of you're like, okay, well, he hasn't killed a ton of my figures. Yeah, his points seem a little crazy, but you know, like it's like respectable to all of a sudden he's like, okay, well, I'm going to kill C-3PO. I'm going to celebrate his death after I've done, you know, price on their heads. And I've, you know, nickel and dimed you enough that I'm going to get 16 points off of these two things. I've also taken like complete control of the board and I'm just going to win. Right. And it's just kind of disorienting to play that the, the the first time. 
And so like you, you kind of see things like that um, in the game in Imperial Assault generally when your opponent does something you're not expecting. And I think of, like the cats are an amazing example of this, David. Like it doesn't change. You're not changing the win condition, but it does change kind of the parameters in which you think you're operating, right? But all of a sudden, like when a cat jumps like 15 spaces across the board or whatever and does eight or nine damage to a, like a figure you need to keep alive, it 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 disorients you. And when you're disoriented, you make mistakes because you, th- you don't know what it is exactly that you need to do. And like you think about like with Mill or with these Jawas, you in, in or Ugnaughts is also an, uh, another example of this where you just do not realize like what it is that your opponent is doing and not knowing that means you can't stop them from doing that. And so you lose. Yeah, I think I think one of the reasons it's so disorienting is because you have a hard time judging the value of their resources. Ooh, great point. Because you're you're not you're not as familiar with how that that deck is run, presumably. I, I guess if you were very familiar with it, you wouldn't be thrown off. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah. So the the point is, I guess they'll play something like price on their heads and you'll sit there and you've got a comms disruption in your hand and the instinct is surely i don't comms disrupt that right there's got to be something better later (laughs) but in that list that that might be one of the biggest threats right because they're no longer playing to kill your figures they're playing to get to 40 and just cards that give them plus three plus four they're almost like the assassinates of, of the vp list yep that's a great point yeah, and what I also find especially interesting about what you said, Kenny, is how the first time you play about um you play against it, it's so disorienting. And that's what I find so interesting about other about other games, such as a Destiny or Warhammer Underworld, where in a tournament you do a best of three, which gives you one that one vital chance to assess what exactly it is your opponent is trying to do. And then you have a second chance to react upon it. Whereas in IA, the gameplay is so much more brutal. Yep. If you go up against, if you've never gone up against the box before, and you go up against it in in a top cut, then you are going to have a really hard time because you have no idea what is going on. Absolutely. It's the same thing if you go up against a, the first time Unshakable Vader came around, it was quite the shock to us all. Yep. But eventually, after you play against it again and again and again and again, you kind of get a knack for, because again, IA is a game mostly which re- revolves around controlling what your opponent can do and what they want to do and where they can go and how they how they do that and etc. And in a game where you can essentially completely throw your opponent off guard, you have this one thing which they never thought you could do. Just by the way you rattle them, I think is worthy of credit. I mean, for example, back in the day with Heart Rangers, I used to play in the shadows, for example. Yep. Which would throw so many people off guard because now suddenly Han is sitting in the middle, uh, in the middle of Nalhata, getting four points around, and no one can shoot him. He's outside of line of sight, but he can see straight into your deployment zone. He can see the entire map, but there's no way for you to get to him with those weak ways. And it's just those small things which you can throw in. And I think it's probably going to be the topic of a future episode of Batman versus a Joker in, in a list and how both of them are both valuable and reliably different okay so i think we have gone through most of what i wanted to talk about we could go over inevitability elements within each faction okay so let's let's talk a little bit about what you can add to your list in order to build up this control element or inevitability but you do have to remember that you are sacrificing other things as well right so, for example, if you bring the Rebel Care Package, you're not bringing combat figures. And that, that does have a big impact on your list. So let's start with, I guess, Rebel. Maybe, Kenny, you want to take it away. So I think the, the, best, the best inevitability factor for Rebels is Rebel Graffiti with Sabine. Because if you draw Rebel Graffiti round one and your opponent is not a hyper aggressive kind of list or you, even if you're just willing if you're able to play back a little bit you will win that game if it goes to time right because you can you ha- can put your opponent in a position where they have to either overcommit or do x or y in order to overcome the fact that you're steadily accruing points right so it's just making each of your rounds that much more efficient 
and your opponent just can't do anything about it, right? Like unless they've got spy cards or something like that. So I would say Rebel Graffiti is a, an incredible example of a card that just gives your your list inevitability. Yeah, I would definitely agree to that um, with that to an extent. For me, I feel like it it simply gives you power in the game, and just like inevitability, power is something which. Whoever is in power is the one who has the tempo leaning towards them. They're controlling the tempo. And everything that Rebel Graffiti does give you that power and tempo, whether that will result in you winning the game, will very much depend on on the player. I mean, there are many, many players who, when they get such an incredible opportunity, such as getting Rebel Graffiti round one, they blow it by being overconfident. And I've done this plenty of times. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't I don't think it, it's like inevitable in the sense of it gives you a condition where you just say, okay, let's run this game out for 75 minutes. Do I, I have got what I need in order to win. Like I will win the game if this game goes to 75 minutes. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think the other things we touched upon are the focus, focus givers. Yep. The card draw figures are to Jabba and Black Market and Spy are all really strong. Absolutely. But what we haven't talked about, actually, is maybe Imperial inevitability as much. So we mentioned that Thrawn gives you some good control because of his abilities. But uh, the Death Troopers can can add a little bit as well. So Thrawn and Death Troopers handing up a lot of tokens. Great point. If you, if you just let everything sit there soon, everything will have two block tokens. And that's not, that's not great for you, even if you have focused up because you've only got a certain number of uh, assassinates and, and tools for the job in your deck, right? That's a great point, actually. And it's also, I mean, I would say another part of the inevitability is like the, the Unshakable Vader and Parting Blow, right? Like Scott has in our local meta, is he's such an incredible Vader player. And what he does with Vader most of the time is he just holds him back. And especially if he's running this Vader in the Jets list, is he just holds him back and he weathers you down. And all of a sudden... Even a scum hunter list comes up to the fact that like I cannot kill Vader and he is going to come in and he's going to attack, kill a figure, parting blow, kill a figure, unshakable, kill a figure, right? Like he's just going to pull off this incredible swing. And so I, I would say that is something that is a strong, there is a strong case for inevitability with a well-played, well-managed, healthy Vader. Well, even if he's not healthy, if sure. he tricks you into spending resources to get half his health, great point, and then doesn't die, that's that's massive, right? Yep, great point. And I kind of feel like another um, figure with imperial inevitability, interestingly enough, is Tarot. Um, not in all aspects, but there is no there is no question that unblockable damage in the late game. Yep is inexplicably powerful because Absolutely. once both players have beat each other down enough it comes down to who can protect their vital figures the better and then when you have figures like obviously sabine but also tarot the ability to move eight and then flamethrower a spot yep not only is that you know incredibly strong for the late game but even for early game against some say swarm lists such as the riot uh, riot swarm riots don't like weaken um, they don't like a damage and a strain either. I mean, riots are some of the tankiest models in the game, but unblockable damage is always going to do it. And Terra's always struck me as, I mean, just such an interesting figure in that way, especially when he has mounted as well. So f- similarly to IG, he can move a couple of spaces for free and then he can perform two powerful damage dealing abilities. That's a great point. Yeah, I think, I think he's, a, he's a good example of mitigating some of the resources that your opponent might have, right? Because he can bypass mm-hmm. things like them rolling surges, them having block tokens, or them rolling a dodge. Great point. And I, th- I think, okay, this is actually the last concept I want to talk about. Um, but in Imperial Assault, we all have to be very aware of when the game ends as well. And Judging whether or not you actually have the 65-minute advantage is very tough. So during the Spectre Cell meta, actually, I remember a couple of people complaining to me that, oh, they would have won if only they had played another round. Yeah. So they, they were playing Spectre Cell against some of the later Scum VP lists. Surprisingly, in the UK, Spectre Cell did still lose occasionally. <laughs> 
But that, I think that really resonated with me because I would often just look at them and say, oh yeah, I mean, Spectre Cell is so strong in the late game, you should have just played faster, obviously. Yeah. Because you're you're almost sure to win if you go past a certain round. But if you let the game end on round two, when they've killed one thing and celebrated and all, all of this stuff, then you you definitely will will lose. So inevitability in terms of you know how long your game is expected to go is also related to setting the um, the parameters of the game, right? So we talked earlier about changing the win condition from killing figures to a victory point rush. You can also change the sort of boundary conditions of your game by just saying, I expect it to go to round three versus round four. Yeah. And you have to be very careful with that. If you're playing a list that's incredibly beefy, like, um, I don't know, double riots, double jets, tarot, something like that, and you don't have much support, you know you need to be pushing the game towards later rounds rather than trying to kill one or two things and end. I totally agree. I think that is 100% correct. Yeah, exactly. And I did kind of see that uh, implemented in my Nationals finals game against Alistair um, last year. In our finals game, obviously, those games are, they have a they have a longer time limit. It's not one hour and five minutes, and it's one hour and 45 or 55 or something like that. And what Alistair, so obviously, he knew what I was running. We collaborate a lot on lists, and he was running Vader. And he told me after the game that he decided that he was either going to he was either going to win quickly or lose in the long run because he believed that if he let me charge up draw all my cards and all of that i was going to win which definitely is fair but he did have spies so who knows what could have happened there but he decided that he was going to go full aggressive and he got the cards to do it so he decided to capitalize and perform on the opportunity he was given and and that's exactly what he did whereas i expected vader to stay back and you know draw his parting blow cards before double moving in or before charging into my deployment zone i wasn't ready for vader to run in and parting blow me and i mean that resulted in in him getting the win because he he drastically changed the win condition and he analyzed that the win condition will be different against other mat against different matchups especially depending on time I mean, on Vassal, that's why Vassal can be so misleading. I know a lot of people who they try to do a 75 minute game because Vassal is a little more difficult to operate than the actual, than the actual um, models on the board. But in, in my opinion, that's exactly why you should do 65. Yeah. Because if you can master 65 minutes on Vassal, then 65 minutes on the board is going to be even easier. I definitely find, yeah, I mean, time is without a doubt such an, it is such a decider on how, on how you play. And that's exactly why I put all the VP cards into my Han Rangers deck against Spectre Cell. Because get the get the few kills you actually can against Spectre Cell, then make sure that you're far enough away that Ezra can't blow you to bits. Oh, I always did find it a bit weird that the final was given a longer time limit in a game like this, because it does it does change so many things. Oh, I totally agree. All right. So I think that's that's everything we wanted to talk about today. We touched upon the other other games already during the episode, so I don't think we need to really hammer that in anymore. Thanks, Kenny, for joining us for our inevitability and who's the beatdown discussion. I think you've gotten a lot of hints on some of the future episodes we'll, we'll be doing <laughs> as well. Guilty as charged. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I love um, your guys' approach to the game. I mean the article that David sent me and then just listening to you guys, it is really interesting to step outside of the framework with which you approach the game. Cause like for me personally, Imperial Assault is just about playing the box and just figuring out like how the box works. Um, but it's still really, really interesting to like pull this apart. And this is something I think someone like Matt does in our local group where what he does is he pulls something apart to see how it works and why it works. He's also, I mean, he's, 
he I, I know he's played CCGs like he him and I were the ones who kind of jumped into Destiny. And it's just really interesting to think about the game in this way because it really can improve your play, right? Like in terms of this thing about who's the beatdown list, I, like it, it's kind of funny how we all said, oh, all of our decks have got this inevitability to them or are these lists do. But it is really important that in a game that matters that you say, am I the beat? Like, am I the beatdown? Like who does have the inevitability condition? If I'm playing against IG and I don't have spies, he's got the inevitability condition, right? And then the question is, like, do, am, am I the beatdown? Like, can I do the damage, you know? And it, you've got to be able to ask and answer these questions in order to make the right decisions in games. And I just love, I love that kind of approach. Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting because when you build a list, if you overbid on these types of resources and then say you come up against Empire, who doesn't care that you have spies, yep. and doesn't care about half the other stuff in your list, and they just run up and the, the riots beat you to death. <laughs> That's yeah. Yep. That, that means you've overtuned to fight one type of thing and left yourself open yep. for the other other meta. Yep, exactly right. Okay, awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us, Kenny. I think that was really fun. Thank you for having me. Alrighty. Well, any f- closing thoughts before we head on out? But if there's anything else you want to add, Kenny? Oh no, that was awesome. That was really really good. I learned a lot. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you everyone Alrighty. for listening. And see you in the next one.